dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am wishing everyone a very happy Valentine's Day. The true beginning of Valentine's Day may be shrouded in a mystery, but one thing is for sure, it is here to stay, and it gives us another great reason to drink wine. But which wine will you be choosing? I hope you enjoy this episode. It is a rare occasion that I am doing all of the talking. So grab a glass of wine and settle in for the story of Valentine's Day and the perfect wine pairing. I want to give a big shout out to CSR of SCV for leaving this five-star review. A wonderful wine podcast. Lori does such a great job presenting various wine topics in a way that is entertaining, interesting, and accessible. She is smart, but also very much at ease and relatable. So thank you, CSR of SCV, for listening and for leaving this fantastic review. This truly is the best way to show support of the podcast and to help let other wine lovers find exploring the wine glass. So why not be like CSR? And while you're listening to this Valentine's Day special, please take a moment to rate and review Exploring the Wine Glass. Ratings are now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Audible. Taking one minute of your time is the only way the logarithms will suggest exploring the wine glass to others. So enjoy the podcast and slancha. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, someday service, champagne specialist, and WSET level two graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now is the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. This day is linked to the celebration of St. Valentine, but which one? The Catholic Church recognizes three different saints named Valentinus or Valentine. The most known Valentine was a priest who performed marriages for young lovers in secret when Emperor Claudius II decided that single men made better soldiers and outlawed marriage. Claudius found out about the secret weddings and had Valentine killed. Jeez, it's pretty rough, isn't it? Claudius II also killed another St. Valentine, I'm guessing he just didn't like the name. This one from Terni in Umbria, who helped Christians escape merciless Roman prisons. It is said that Valentine sent the first Valentine's letter to the jailer's daughter, who he fell in love with when she visited prior to his death, which he signed from your Valentine. Now, Although we have St. Valentine's in history, there are other explanations for this holiday. One is that as many Christian holidays, it was created to counter the Ides of February pagan ritual Lupercalia. The festival was thought to bring its participants fertility and was dedicated to Faunus, the Roman god of agriculture. During the festival, the men would sacrifice a goat for fertility and a dog for purification. They would then skin the goat, bathe in its blood, and create a loincloth out of it. After which, they would go into the town where the woman would come out to be slapped with the skin. (laughs) 
I don't exactly know what's going on here, but it doesn't sound like a religious holiday to me. Pregnant women believed that the touch of the goat would allow them to give birth to healthy babies. Women who weren't pregnant believed that it would add to their fertility. Those women would then place their names in an urn. The unwed men would choose a name out of the urn and they would be married. Kind of like the Love at First Sight reality show we got to watch now. For those of you who are English poet fans, another theory behind the tradition of Valentine's Day is that it actually originated thanks to Geoffrey Chaucer. In his 1375 poem, Parliament of Fowls, the opening line states, So short our lives, so hard the lessons, so difficult the tests, so sudden the final victory, so tenuous the hope of joy that so easily evaporates into fear. This is what I mean by love. Chaucer continues, For this was sent on St. Valentine's Day. One, every fowl cometh there to choose his mate. The poem is written through the eyes of the narrator as he dreams about traveling through beautiful lands and happens upon the Temple of Venus. He watches in awe as male eagles attempt to seduce one female. Similar to his most popular, The Canterbury Tales, the prose is full of speeches and vulgarity. In the end, the female chooses neither of the males. Instead, she asks Mother Nature to give her another year to decide on a mate. Mother Nature agrees as she turns to the male eagles and states, a year is not too long to endure. Every year when Valentine's Day approaches, a certain story enters my mind. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Her favorite pastimes were riding her horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it in the morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said to her. Farm boy, fill these with water, please. As you wish. She leaves his eyes stay on her. She stops, turns. He manages to look away as now her eyes stay on him. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was that day she realized she truly loved him back. So happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Today is the most romantic day of the year, at least according to Hallmark. But on this day, this is the story that always enters my mind. It doesn't get more romantic than finding true love losing true love, being forced to marry another to find out he is going to kill you, realizing that your true love is actually still alive and that he built up an immunity to iocane powder, fought rouses, rodents of unusual size, and avoided lightning sand in a fire swamp, was tortured to almost dead but survived, and then finally storms the castle all in the name of love and ultimately rescues you. If you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, And wondering, what the heck does this have to do with Valentine's Day? Well, it is completely inconceivable, often used in the book. This story is by far one of the best books and movies ever created. And a true Valentine's Day love story. The Princess Bride by William Goldman is the perfect book to cuddle up to your loved ones by a cozy fire and pour yourself a wonderful glass of wine. It may be a little chilly out there, and people's minds aren't quite thinking about rosé yet. But is there really another wine style that calls out Valentine's Day more than rosé? 
It's pink, which is the perfect color for Valentine's Day. And I know the beating heart is love is red, but there is something romantic about seeing a lovely pink in your glass as you clink it with your loved one. Plus, it comes in sparkling. There are a few stories about how rosé came to be. The interesting thing is that they all have a common theme, laziness. First up is the story of Frate Pichi and the tram station connecting Civitanov, March, and the Vatican City. Frate Pichi was supposedly a wine expert, and March County was a region dedicated to the wine production. Local farmers would give their wine to Frate Pichi, asking him to bring it to Rome so that the Pope could bless it. Being rather lazy, and honestly a bit greedy, Frate Pichi took all of their wine. But as opposed to keeping it separate, he dumped it all into barrels, not separating the red from the white, thus resulting in rosé wine. The second legend, similar in results, but this one takes place on Lake Garda. This time, rosé was created thanks to a lazy monk. He was so lazy that he relied on fellow villagers' charity in order to get by. After trying to get him to tend a garden and his refusal, they decided, enough of this, we're not going to help you anymore. Now, since the villagers turned on him, you would think he would begin to take care of himself. But mm, no, he chose a different route. He decided to start stealing wine from vats. Obviously, food wasn't his priority. Since he was stealing wine while it was still macerating, he discovered rosé wine. So whether it's laziness, impatience, or lack of knowledge, many of the first recorded wines were rosé. These wines were watered-down blends of both white and red grapes. In fact, in ancient Greece, where the history of wine can be traced back, it was considered civilized to dilute wine. In fact, 26 centuries ago, when the Greeks founded a colony in Marseille, the wine-growing culture was introduced in province. These wines were light in color, very similar to rosé. It is thought that they weren't really trying for rosé per se. It was that the technology of maceration was on the grape skins was either not known or in very limited use. It is for this reason that Provence is considered the oldest wine growing region in France and the first wines to be made were rosé. Now, it is more likely that wine just simply wasn't left to macerate as long as it does today, and thus it never fully became red. Although the Romans ultimately popularized red wine in Europe around the mid-hundreds BC, rosé did remain popular in regions of France. Now, there are other stories behind the beginnings of rosé not involving laziness. Well, I guess it kind of still is laziness, the idea was making people too lazy to fight. Amphictyon, son of Deucalion and Pyra, ruled Athens for 12, debatable, years and founded the Amphictonic League. I'm guessing this was kind of like the Masons, and they supposedly met at Thermopyle in historical times. During his reign, Dionysus was supposed to have visited Amphictyon in Athens multiple times and taught him how to mix water with wine in proper proportions. It was a skill, you see. This was, according to myth, performed to dilute the red wine strength in order to minimize quarreling. If you're drinking and you're not getting drunk, there's less quarreling. Now that we know the history of rosé, what exactly is it? It's right smack dab in the middle of red and white, but how is it made? 
Do winemakers sit in their back barrel rooms blending their reds with their whites? Well, they can, but it's typically not made that way unless you're in Champagne. How intriguing is that? What is actually thought to be a lower quality of rosé in the United States and very rarely done and is outright prohibited in other regions of France, for rosé champagne, producers may add Pinot Noir or Pinot Meunier for hue and flavor to their Chardonnay. There are two main methods of the production of rosé. True rosé is made from red grapes, gaining its color from the anthocyanins, those natural pigments, found in the skin. Press, or direct press, is done similar to a production of red wine. The fruit is harvested specifically to be a rosé. This typically means that it is picked earlier than if the winemaker was picking the fruit to be a red wine, allowing for more acidity in the grape. The winemaker will press the red grapes, allowing the juice to remain in contact with the skins until the juice reaches the desired color, and then it is immediately removed to be fermented separately. So you are getting one wine. Saignet, also known as bleeding, is a process where the winemaker is making the rosé wine by removing some of the juice from the red wine vat. They are producing two wines from one fruit harvest. The fruit is harvested at the ideal time for red wine. The winemaker allows the juice to be bled off from the grapes, providing them with a light tinted wine for their rosé. But since there is more skin contact on the remaining juice, this makes their red wine darker and bolder. So they're really thinking about producing a higher quality red wine And that rosé is a second thought. There is much debate over which process is better. Some believe that Saignet method is merely a byproduct of the desire to create that deeply concentrated specific red wine. While the direct press method, the fruit is destined to be a rosé from the beginning, so the quality is thought to be higher. But there is still plenty of Saignet method used to produce a very seriously high-quality rosé wine. An example of these quality Saignet rosé is Tavel. This AOC wine region is located in the southern Rhône of France, across the river from Châteauneuf-de-Pop. Grenache and Cinso are the main grapes used here. However, in 1969, Syrah and Mauvede were permitted. In Tavel, some of the must is kept on the skins longer and then blended into the lighter must. Now, I know you're thinking to yourself, you just said it is illegal in France to blend red and white wine. And you know what? Your confusion is understandable and you're yelling at me. I get it. But this is legal because it is actually happening prior to the fermentation process. Crafty little Tavel producers. This process is what makes the wine more powerful, more tannic, and darker than other rosés. So be prepared for a different rosé experience. And now a word from our sponsor. Dracaena Wines may be best known for their award-winning Cabernet Franc, but they also produce a highly rated rosé, Cordeline. Kind of a strange name, but of course there's a story behind it. Dracaena Wines got their name from the Dracaena Draco tree in honor of their Weimaraner Draco. Well, there is a Dracaena Cordeline, and instead of having green leaves, it has pink leaves. 
pink wine, pink leaves, cordyline. The wine is produced in extremely small quantities, so be sure to get yours before they sell out. New vintages release in April, and Chalk Club members always have priority ordering. Slancha. Now, let's return to Champagne and their rosé. If you aren't aware, Champagne can only be made with three grape varieties, Chardonnay, Pinot Meunier, and Pinot Noir. There are two methods. The first is Rosé d'Assemblage, or blended Champagne. It is this method where winemakers are blending the red and the white. They can add up to 15% of still red Champagne wine, which is either Pinot Meunier or Pinot Noir, to their Chardonnay. The second is Rosé des Saignets, or macerated Champagne. In this case, the winemakers allow the grape must to be in contact with the skins for a few hours. The skins then impart their color into the wine and also some flavor and aromatics. This results in a wine with a deeper pink color and stronger flavor profiles. All right, now it's time to talk about the elephant in the room, white Zinfandel. If you enjoy white Zinfandel, please do not take offense. By all means, continue to revel in all of its glory. As you know, I will never tell you what to drink, but although I will always share what's in my glass, you're never going to find white Zinfandel in it. My palate just isn't a fan. So during the 1970s, white wine was a huge hit, and the demand was greater than the supply of California grapes. Knowing that you must adapt or be eliminated, California producers started making white wine from red grapes using the Sanye method. Thanks to a stuck fermentation and a great marketing team, Sutter Home released the category of blush wines. So what's a stuck fermentation? When wine is being produced, the grapes are harvested and they contain sugar. The winemaker adds yeast to the grapes, or they could rely on the grapes that are naturally occurring in the winery and on the grapes themselves. If fermentation goes as planned, the yeast will consume the sugar and release carbon dioxide and alcohol as their byproducts. It is this process, alcohol fermentation, that gives us wine. But when things don't go as planned, Something happens that causes the yeast to die off before they have eaten all the sugar. This leads to residual sugar in the wine and causes the wine to be sweet. This is what happened, and the wines became known as inexpensive sweet pink wines, and unfortunately caught fire, leading to negative opinion of rosé wine, the belief that all pink is sweet. In the 90s, rosé and wine were completely different categories. If you were a serious wine drinker, you would never be caught dead sipping on pink. You would need to hide in the dark shadows of cafes and cheap restaurants. But around the 20s, fancy resorts and exclusive destinations found French rosé and opinions for the pink drink began to change. Today, there is an array of rosé wines that are fermented to complete dryness. So as we clink our glasses on Valentine's Day with our loved ones, even if it's just your dog, remember, it's not really drinking alone if your dog is home. Remember that rosé is not just a summer sipper. Yes, it can be a fun and light aperitif and often an introduction to the bigger, bolder wines. There is absolutely nothing wrong with drinking rosé as your main course pairing. 
rosés can really work wonders in bringing out the flavors and the textural elements of a dish. Much like its red counterpart, rosé wines come in a myriad of styles. On one end, you have the dry and savory styles like Tempranillo, Cabernet Sauvignon, or Syrah. And on the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum, you'll find fruit-forward rosés like Grenache, Zinfandel, Sangiovese, and Mauvet. Beyond these basic descriptions, these wines also offer an extraordinary wealth of nuances in terms of texture, flavor, and mouthfeel. Trust me, there is a rosé for every palate and every celebration. So tonight, as you are clinking to celebrate your love and Valentine's Day, why not add a little pink to the celebration? Slancha. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music is Wine by Kevens. Until next week, slancha. There is always time.